Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells you all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I am your host, Marianne Petrie. This episode of Slam the Gavel is sponsored by CPS Protect Consulting Services. A child protective services case is one of the most frightening experiences for any parent. Don't face it alone. Face it with confidence, with urgent assist by CPS Protect. You can have access to former CPS investigators to make sure you preserve your rights and protect your family. If you're facing CPS involvement and aren't sure where to turn, their child welfare consultants can help you. Visit CPS Protect tech.com forward slash subscribe and enter the coupon code slam the gavel for 60% off your first year of urgent assist. And this is available in all 50 states. I have another announcement. Bradley's mother, Narcus Golan, passed away in the fall of 2022. Bradley is autistic and needs structured routine and therapies he receives for his autism six days a week. However, Italy just entrusted Bradley to Italian social services. If he has ruled to go back, he will then face the next three to four years in the Italian foster care system where he can't speak or understand the language, and he will then be taken away from the only family he has ever known. Please call Governor Hochul at 518-474-8390 to keep Bradley here safe in these United States. That's Governor Hochul at 518-474-8390 to hashtag keep Bradley safe. One last announcement. Please go to the site, please do your job.com. We need 2,500 more signatures to reopen a case. That's please do your job.com. I've got a brand new guest on. I have Angus Williams on. He is from Jefferson County, Kentucky, but originally from Australia. And he started the Earhart Club as a love letter to his daughter. He has spent his career working as a physical therapist, mentor, and teacher with a special interest in leadership, team building, and drawing all people forward toward their unrealized potential. In serving thousands of people, he has landed on the theory that the epidemic of our time is loneliness, a lack of meaningful connection, not just with others, but so often with ourselves. We have lost our own unique voice to the expectations of others. And he makes a distinction between our ego and our spirit. Our spirit is who we are, the truth, our soul, the gift of God within us, and our ego is our mind, our perception of who we are, which is fed from the outside, parents, teacher, culture, media, and more. Our culture has been curated to a tug of war between our mind and our spirit, giving rise to dispiritedness that is the starting point for so much of the modern mental health conversation. A child's authentic voice is not just what they say, but also their behaviors, their values, their voice, is their spirit. The Earhart Club is for his daughter to grow up in a world where her voice is not just an idea, but a responsibility and to reduce teen suicides, anxiety, depression, addictive behaviors by 90% over 25 years. The Earhart Club has served over 3,000 children plus a trusted adult, so over 6,000 human lives impacted with measurable outcomes. And I'm so glad to have you on, Angus. You know, what prompted you to start this Earhart Club? Uh, Hi there, Marianne. Thank you very much for having me. Um, The Earhart Club was before my daughter. So I've got a a daughter now whose middle name is Earhart. So we named her, her first name is for the the beauty of a beautiful name. And then her middle name was for the strength of Amelia Earhart. So, um, and that was an idea sort of poking around in my head sort of before she was born. 
And one of the few decisions I was allowed to make in my marriage and the birth of my daughter was the um, was her name. And um, so, and, and I've always figured you grow into your name. So I think she was named with a, a particular strength and a, an American icon and a world icon. Um, so, and I phrased it early on as being a love letter to my daughter. I think it's since evolved to become a love letter to, you know, amongst other people, myself. I, I think we've all through the course of this world, we live in sort of lost our way a little bit and lost our own unique voice in the spirit of fitting in and belonging, which is one of the most primitive and basic human needs. And so we deal with um, primarily elementary and middle school kids. We've got a lot of interest in um, with high schools, the, the, the school district here. We do programs in community centers and whatnot, served over 3,000 kids plus their parents, as you mentioned. And one of the starkest uh, statistics of our, of our work is that at the front end of it with no context so you know kids learn very quickly and, it, and it's relevant to family law as well as kids learn very quickly what the right answer is and they can be led to the right answer but we're very careful at the front end of it in the first of eight sessions it's an eight-week journey of curiosity understanding and values and so at the first session one of the first things they do is answer three questions who understands you the most what do you daydream about and what makes your heart sing and 73% of these little girls, and we've now developed it into a boys and a, a father and son journey as well, but primarily girls in the first 2,500 or so participants, 73% of them would say, no one understands me. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, which is, if you're a parent or a, an adult with a child, that's devastating. And the numbers bear out the same with boys. So it's a, it's a human connection disconnect and then we and at the same time at the at the t- same time in the t- same session we ask the mums the same three questions but we also ask them an extra question do you think you understand your daughter and do you think she'd agree and over 80 percent of the mums say oh yeah we're bffs i know we're inside and out so there's this big disconnect the kids saying no one gets me and the mum is saying i do now this is no this is not on mums or against the parents but the world we live in has our ego telling us we know the person in front of us mm-hmm. and the person on the other side of the conversation is saying you actually don't you know and, and i can tell you don't because you haven't asked me a question or honored my answer or whatever so we have these an eight week sort of journey of low tech high engagement and at the end of it, and there's some letter writing parts to it and it's really just about your know, individual engagement and um and at the end of it those numbers are effectively invert so that the mothers are humble you know so we we so the numbers have switched around to where the girls say you know what mum actually gets me and the mums are aware of the fact that maybe they don't fully understand their daughter and so we say that the girls have established community one of the other basic human needs alongside their mother and the mothers have revisited and, and the fathers have revisited their humility alongside their their daughter or son and um, which is powerful stuff. And it's palpable in the room. You, every mother balls her eyes out at the fact that, you know, where was this when I was a kid? Mm-hmm. Because as we're, 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 we all sort of feel this need to push or drag our kids where they think, where we think they need to go and sort of sitting with them, meeting them where they're at, asking them questions, honoring them at their answers, seeing the world through their eyes before we insist that they see the world through ours. Because we can, we can continually opine that the world screwed up. And then we insist that our kids sort of follow suit. I mean, I would figure as a parent, you know, one of the great miracles of time and having grown up not particularly religious or of particular faith, I think you can't not have faith when you realise 
you have children at a time in life when you've sort of lost your individuality to the whims of the world, you know, the man-made world. And here you get this second chance to see the world through the eyes of a child, you know, before they learn to hate and to judge and to know. Because kids are born endlessly curious and endlessly self-assured until we knock that out of them. Mm-hmm. So I'm very proud of the work we do. And I think what we see is the, uh, and these these numbers are the same, whether you're whether there's a, an intact family or, or a disrupted family, but uh, so it's a it's a and it's and it's across all demographics. So so we're living in this age where modern society is diminishing that connection between a parent and a child, and and the tragedy of that is it, it diminishes a child's connection with themselves. And I'll, I'll just touch for a second on that importance for or the the spirit and the ego. So you know, your spirit is who you are, the absolute truth. You know, so. The, the, the part of God that lives within each of us. And you know, so when you say that to an attorney, they, they say, you mean I'm God? And, <laughs> and so um, that God's in, in them. But, um, so, but our, our ego is fed from the outside. So, the, so there's this tug of war that is continually drawing us away from home base, your homeostasis. Now, in our body, chemically, where, you know, if your sugar goes nuts, your the, your insulin is released to bring you back to equilibrium. Mm-hmm. When our when we're kids and our brain and our 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 mind gets drawn away from our spirit, there's little chemical reactions, whether it's dopamine or all of neurotransmitters that are effectively there to bring us back to to home base, mm-hmm. and which, which is part of the brilliance of things. But now we live in a world now that weaponizes that. We oh. we call that mental illness, you know, and so. There's a the most of that dispiritedness, dispiritedness I call it, is this is really the world is drawing us that way. So it's creating this chasm. So we at the front end of things create this human anguish of loneliness, desperation, feeling misunderstood. And at the back end of it, we have the heroes come in, like the family lawyers and the mental health practitioners and all these people that come in to to turn that human anguish that was willfully created, created but unintentionally sort of brought about by the, the, the innocent parents in the situation. And we turn that anguish into a manageable chronic illness, you know, basically holding people shy of their unrealized potential. And if we live in a world now where there's three, I, I, I do a lot of talks through all demographics here in this community, and there's three things that we focus on, the, the, the color of our skin, what's between our legs, and the, the skin and the zip code we grew up in. All of those factors can have a tremendous impact on the start point for your journey, and, and there's no disputing that. However, if you... The, the if you spend all your time looking back, essentially when you put those three factors into a sled behind somebody's back and have this incredible burden behind them, they're, bus- they're focused on the burden they're dragging with them instead of having their eyes to the front drawn forwards to the unique and individual potential that was presented to them and born within them by God. It's because no one, the, power, the powers that be, don't want 300 million empowered individuals so we call we do a bunch of things to disempower people in the end but call it empowerment and and that disempowerment of the masses 
emboldens a select few, but at the other end of the spectrum absolutely destroys a select few. But there's a gradual drift toward dehumanization, mm -hmm. diminishment, and just devaluing the individual in, you know, in the name of serving you know, some nameless group. Yes, and, and take away the critical thinking that kids need and even adults need to start doing is the critical thinking. Absolutely. Well, I think I always, so in, the, in the spirit of the Earhart Club, you know, children are born endlessly curious and endlessly self-assured. It's just a, a given and until we knock it out of them. And so kids will ask why, why, why? And then over time, we roll our eyes a few times and then they learn pretty much to stop asking questions and looking to learn the answer. They just accept the answers given to them because asking questions is too too troublesome to to the to the the, the power in the room, which is a kid. It can be your parents or the or the teacher or whoever. So yeah, there's um, <laughs> there's a lot there. That's excellent. That's excellent. And you know how does you know? I know you're you're relating this to the family court system, which is. Um, you know, it, it's a system that is very um, well-oiled machinery that's just going to keep churning out unhappiness, broken homes, even more broken, and uh, children that are being torn away from one parent and given to an abuser, um, whether it be mom or dad, and the judges are not looking at evidence. Um, absolutely. I, I think the spirit of your podcast and, the, and I think the spirit in the, of half the population that's had a relationship to some degree or another with family court, it, it's obvious to anybody with an objective mind that, that, that the system is broken and, and the system is sort of self-perpetuating at this point. And it's a, a significant sort of cottage industry that keeps a lot of people busy and a lot of well-intentioned, reasonable people that are sort of patting themselves on the back because we've turned, you're keeping quiet and you know, we've, we've turned mindless obedience into a virtue and, and speaking up and rocking the boat into a mental derangement. So the, so the system, it is what it is. And at the front end of it, to be honest, I would say from the beginning, you know, historically wars have been used as agents for social change so after world war one and world war two for example it was it, whether it was that accidental or not they discovered that kids that had a, a, a father absent from the home for an extended period of time were up to seven times more likely to get in trouble with the law or, or fall afoul of societal norms and then after World War II and then the ensuing you know, boom years, we sort of gradually sort of rebranded that under the, the guise of freedom and, you know, hippiness and all this stuff into this wonderful frame, you know, best interests, you know, that's become like sort of the, the, the catchphrase for all things serving the, the, the so-called interests of children without any consideration down the line to the actual interest, uh, interests of the children. So, you know, I look at the, um, you know, so part, some of the big movements that came about, for example, in the 60s was the family, family law was one of the big conversations that really became lots of the legislation that still sort of taints our society today you know, came from that era. The women's movement and the civil rights movement were all these movements that were posited as as 
force for positive change and finally leveling the playing field. But I think history will show us that it was, it was the, if the intention was that, there would have been a few sort of revisiting the course and sort of recalibrating where we were going instead of doubling down on we're doing the right thing. It's the little people that, that the little people aren't benefiting because the little people aren't following the rules the, the way the powerful say they should be following the rules. So the the other big thing that came out of the of that era was the the, the mental health conversation. It's crept into the lexicon over the last fifty or sixty years. But the self esteem movement, and bear in mind this is with the military and the CIA and whatnot studying human behavior for decades, if not centuries, in the lead up to this. And so they learn a lot about human psychology. And um, I just lost my train of thought there. So, so they create this, um, the, the, the mental health conversation, uh, that created the, the self-esteem movement. So the self-esteem movement was dressed up as this very, very positive thing. They noticed that people with high self-esteem, they do better in school, they get better jobs, they make more money, they have better outcomes. And so many of the metrics we, we measure as success in our society. And... Um, but I think looking back on it and anybody that was involved in it, I think it wasn't an accident that what that created was a, you know, a, a massive ego at the expense of self-esteem. So what we did was we made this praise movement, you know, praise, praise, praise. You know, everything's got to be right. Everything's amazing and, and you can never do wrong. And so, but what that did is every time you get a compliment as a little kid, and I think there's a significance to why we start school earlier and earlier these days, is if you get kids hooked on dopamine a little bit earlier, they're, yeah. they're a lot more pliable because it feels good. So you, you, you create, but what the sinister part of it is, it shifts a person's locus of control outside of them. So what you learn as a kid is that every solution, every problem originates outside of you and every solution is going to originate from outside of you. So it actually disempowers you and makes you a lot more susceptible to, to the powerful that presents themselves as the hero and the solution to the problem that they, in fact, created. <laughs> so and here we are and the, and the dark forces are incredibly patient. So here we are two generate two or three generations on. And we're seeing the fruits of this where people have learned that they can do no wrong. And, and once you know, like you, like we become entrenched in the fact that we know and we use words like facts and truth, like to describe our feelings rather than attached to any actual value. Mm -hmm. And so we become contemptuous of anybody who thinks differently than us, but we don't like to use words contempt about ourselves because we're righteous and virtuous and good people. So we call it compassion and tolerance. And we tolerate the lesser people than us who, who have the audacity to think differently than we do. And you know, this, we're going off on all kinds of tangents here, but, oh, but, yeah. could, but one of the great sort of post-World War II movements of you know, the GI Bill and whatnot of sort of really pushing this, the education point. I, I'm an academic by nature. I've taught at the, the postgraduate level at, a, at, a, at the University of Michigan. So I, um, I'm academic by nature. And I think academia traditionally was about curiosity and learning and the fact that there is no absolute, you know, that there's always this search for further understanding. And, and once you know you stop asking questions and you sort of, you put your stake in the ground and said, I know it. So you're not going to budge me. 
So you either get on board with me or not. And if you don't, I'm going to diminish you and destroy you because nothing's going to you know, disturb my perception that I know and you don't. And so we've created educa education as one of the rites of passage for a huge portion of adults, most of which, to be honest, doesn't require a college degree or doesn't require you know, $200,000 in debt, especially. But, but we're effectively, for the professional class, buying letters, after, paying a lot of money to buy letters after our name from the state to do the bidding of the state, but it's dressed up as providing value to the community. So the, the letters after your name play to the ego that's been nurtured or groomed from the time you were little. So you have the letters after your name, which tell you that you know, you know it, and you're in this club. And anybody that doesn't have those letters after your name, they don't know. So they're less than, and, and you have power over them and you have a, a, a government-sanctioned right to diminish the person that doesn't have the letters after their name that you do. So we create this, this massive divide all and use words like science and truth and reason and best interests and whatnot to sort of, sort of push it on to the, to the masses and as if we're so, so the the importance part of the letters is dressed as providing value to the community. Mm -hmm. So you know, a drug company can you know know that a drug may not be effective at doing what it's supposed to be, what they purport it to do, but they have the little minions of the drug reps sort of going out there armed with the science that was given to them by the drug company, and they, they go forth and and tell the world, and they're very important because they know. But they're, they're, and it's driven as providing value to diabetics or people with chronic pain or, or whatever it is, but, they, but they're not providing the value they believe. So they're actually, those drug reps, like some family lawyers, are actually the victim of a system that is dressed up as providing value when it's actually just, just bold, emboldening the, the, the powerful and, and s not so slowly eroding the fabric of our society and the bedrock of our communities. Well, I like how you said that, you know, um, with these kids growing up, everything was about, you know, um, you know, complimenting a child all the time. All of that, you know, Johnny has to have a trophy. Everyone in the, in the class gets a trophy. Mm -hmm. I think what that has done has built up, I hate to say this, personality disorders, because they think everything's going to go their way at all times. And then they, then they go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, and they learn how important they really are and how much value they can provide to society, oblivious to the fact that they're part of, you know, pulling it apart at the seams. But when you tap, touch on the, the personality disorders thing there, you know, if you do stuff in the schools as we do, you know, 30 to 40% of adolescent kids now are, have a label attached to them, like essentially an asterisk by their name. They're, they're anxious or they're depressed or they're bipolar or they're ADHD or they've got an oppositional defiant disorder or borderline personality disorder or whatever, all of which are sort of man-made constructs and labels attached to the perfectly predictable result of a human being being devalued you know, earlier in time. So we have weaponized the human condition to turn it into a mental derangement. So I've got an idea in my head for a book of, um, called you know, Your Feelings, Your Truth, Your Reaction. 
So everything is about a kid's feeling. So it, and, and they get this dopaminergic re reaction to your feelings are the most important thing in the world at, at the expense of your values and then your, um, your truth. So everybody's allowed to have their own truth completely. Mm -hmm. And it's got, doesn't matter if it's true or not. Your yeah. truth is this, and my truth is attached to my feelings. So how dare you challenge my truth with anything objective and, and reproducible that might create an actual level playing field where a reasonable discussion can occur. And then the other part of it is, you know, the, the reaction, uh, like your reaction. So we live in this world where we look at the reaction and, and call it. So this is part of the medical paradigm. We invert symptom and problem. So we create the reaction is entirely predictable. But if you say that that reaction is the problem instead of the symptom, you, you never have to solve the problem. And as long as you keep the pipeline going, you, you create, keep creating the symptoms. And there's an industry now built around kids that, are, that have been for generations now groomed into being lonely, essentially diminished as individuals. So they've lost their voice to the, to the group. And we see this movement now to get kids belonging to a group first of, you know, they're white, they're black, they're trans, whatever it is. You have to belong to a group first before you're recognized as an individual. And one of the hallmarks and benchmarks of the, the Earhart Club is this notion that every child, I think, has, and I, I'm always reticent, reluctant to use the word right, but has the birthright to have an individual and reciprocal relationship with community, whereby they provide value. They have a responsibility to provide value to the community yet have a reasonable expectation of being valued by the community in return. Now, based on who they are, on their, their contributions based on who their skill set. And, and, and finding that skill set comes down to understanding your values. So we, we talk about helping children alongside their parent come to understand their values and learn their values not just as buzzwords and these fancy ideas that allow us grown-ups to pat ourselves on the back and say, aren't we virtuous and we're helping serve the little ones, but actually as a responsibility, you know, where, because, you know, God's currency is, is faith, like man's currency is money or power, and a child's currency is time. And think of the two big trades in family law, <laughs> money and time. And, and it's not an accident and the kids lose. So when you talk about kids having these personality disorders, I would actually sort of push back on that somewhat and say that's the label we give to a dispirited child, a child who's been diminished and devalued because we treat children in this in this world now as if they're we give them so much freedom at a young age to make adult decisions but at the same time we treat them as absolute imbeciles like they they notice absolutely nothing around them so when you tell a kid and, and i think this was part of the design when you tell a kid that they're amazing they're amazing they're amazing kids are like adults occasionally they'll half up half I was going to say half, but half bake something in this and just to get it over with and to, to get it done and, and whatever. And if you tell a kid who, you know, I've got a personal story about it. I remember when I was little, I was in kindergarten and Mrs. Burko was my, my teacher and I hated finger painting, hated it. And I sucked because I hated it. And I remember this is one of my first memories as a kid. I remember her walking over to me to, to the painting, the, the easel, and I remember thinking to myself, I said, if she tells me this is great, 
I will lose all respect for her. And she came over and picked up the paints and said, let's find something else for you to do. And from that moment on, I respected her tremendously because I knew she wasn't going to tell me something that wasn't true. Now, if she had, I lose a little bit of faith in her. And the tragedy of that is when we lose faith as children and the adults that are there to sort of be our the stewards of our entering the, the real world, we lose faith in ourselves. And when you as a kid lose faith in yourself, you're again held shy of your unrealized potential. You're, you're, you're living on defense and you're a lot more pliable and, and susceptible to the whims and fancies of, of bad actors in the world. And, and it's safe to say, I think a lot of the institutions in the world these days that are, are sort of drifting toward certainly neglect, if not outright hostility toward you know, individual, you know, to, the, to the cluster of, of you know, to the, the group of, of kids. It's, I think it's always been a war on the next generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that is interesting. I guess what I meant when I said, well, you know, you, you hand out trophies to everyone and that this will eventually create a personality disorder over time, like not right away, not as kids. But I'm saying if you just keep telling every these kids how great they are and then they're 16, how great they are. And I mean, I saw a Facebook post where someone posted their little kid in a cheerleading you know with her hair pulled up in the ponytails and they said we're so proud of the young (laughs) you've become i'm going wait wait you're proud of her just being a cheerleader wait a minute did she win a math competition that's what i you should be posting not that okay cheerleading and we're proud of you because of that yeah okay so it's it's so so we diminish like we we so uh, there's, I'm lost for the word for it, but we devalue actual achievement in in the for the sake of sort of the optics of achievement, and or just sort of so so we diminish you know, like the the phrase of American exceptional exceptionalism, which is one of the big draws for for centuries now of people coming to the this great beacon of light on the hill that was the land of the free, the home of the brave, and exceptionalism was the expectation. It was the place where you weren't going to be held back by a tyrannical government. You could you know, move into your best self and actually affect change in the world. And that sort of reminds me of, like I, I was born and raised in Australia, a very lucky country. And I remember when I was sworn in as a citizen, you know, like it was a pretty significant day in my life, but it wasn't a huge cultural shift for me, having come from a, a very civilized Western country. But there are people in this room, there's hundreds of people in the room being sworn in, and they've come from all kinds of different backgrounds and political and, and whatnot. And there's there's a bunch of sobbing and tears in the room because as you swear in to, to become a you know, swear to become a United States citizen you are basically swearing allegiance to the United States and and the constitution thereof. And so you're essentially agreeing to be bound by the United States constitution, which used to be certainly at least one of the significant documents of the world. And And in return at that ceremony, you are essentially promised that you will be protected by that same document. And as you think of in the context of family law, when you walk into a family courtroom, that constitution is out the window. <laughs> it, it is, it, it is not at play. And and we these lawyers that are practicing today were part of that self esteem movement. And I think I get where you were going with that. The 
disordered personality, or even if you just say personality traits. I, I think we've created this a trait of, of I don't particularly like the word narcissism, but that notion of that. but that but that trait of immediacy and it's got to serve my feelings and it's immediate so we talk about in the air heart club and some of the addiction work i do we talk about immediate gratification power and control which is really the 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 offspring of the dopaminergic reaction which we fuel in our children so immediate gratification power and control sounds really strong but it's actually the antithesis of the human condition. And if you were to root out a, a recipe for addiction, it would go through immediate gratification, power and control. And the opposite of that is humility and compassion or humility and empathy. Now, both of those words sound weak and reactive, but they're actually the strength of, of the human condition. But if you've been groomed from a child to realize that everything you were doing was okay and then in psychologists this is not news to to me certainly is that psychologists and certain of the people in, in this the the social in those sciences including law and those drawn within the law profession toward family law in particular have certain personality traits that that don't necessarily lend them to authentic compassion authentic community or authentic empathy it's dressed up as that and it makes them feel good about the fact that they're providing value but they're they're not connecting the their obedience and following the rules to to the often tragic outcomes which i can touch on touch on in a minute so it, what this leads to in, in the narcissistic degree and in, in any group in any population the world over about three percent anywhere from one to five percent but on average three percent of the people are actual psychopaths now so the we at the end of so of this narcissistic generation where, where we've been pushed toward it's about me it's about now i know you don't and i've got to get what makes me feel good right now you there's a small group at, at, at one end of the spectrum that are prone to become to really sort of brooding and developing deep fantasies about power and control and so and and a lot of psychopaths have this um, trademark period of sort of isolation and brooding, and um, so if you so you 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 don't become Ted Bundy overnight, or you don't become Lance Armstrong, and I I don't mean to say he's a sociopath, but there's in some ways you could argue maybe he is, but and you don't become like the leading family attorney in a particular county by overnight there's there's a thousand or ten thousand sort of micro decisions or micro transgressions of your your own conscience on the way there and the and we operate because we've been conditioned to need dopamine as, as a society all of us but to varying degrees we're always sort of on the edge of novelty we're going to be pushing the envelope to get that next level of excitement so if you're a, a, a habitual storyteller or liar you know you you will continually be pushing the the, the depth and breadth of, of the lies you tell if you are an attorney and you you learn how to navigate the law but in order to keep excited and the front end of things and novelty you sometimes realize you know you can't win some cases with the truth sometimes you've got to lie you know 
but because it's for the greater good and you're providing value to the, the child that you purport to serve, you can justify it to yourself. And, and it's just a micro decision here and there that in each individual instance, you can tell yourself is, is just fine. And some of those transgressions aren't so micro, but, you know, for example, the first time a lawyer purges themselves or suborns perjury in their clients, the, and it goes unnoticed or unchecked, then all of a sudden it opens up a whole new world and there's a, a very slippery slope. So it's almost like, I think, as, the, as humans, there's this constant battle in all of us between the light and the dark, you know. So I, I liken it to this, the spirit of sin is crouching on our doorstep, you know, and it's always there. And it's the, it's the decision we make as a human being with a conscience to, to sort of keep the spirit of sin at bay. Mm-hmm. But there's a point where you open the door to the spirit of sin through these micro decisions and micro transgressions of your conscience. And you end and you allow the spirit of sin into your home and you and basically let it have its way with you. And you are effectively entering into a collaborative venture with, with the devil. But it's because it's happened so slowly, you can completely and utterly justify it as being reasonable. So as I've talked to a few friends about family law, when, when you walk in there as a civilian that's that's sort of enamored by the words of best interests and good faith and all these, you know, double words that create the image of um of nobility, you know, when it's, you know, and tyranny always is presented as nobility. But you uh, you go into this courtroom and you're, you're struck by the fact that the, the, the playing field is tilted 30 degrees toward the system and, and away from the children. But the actors in the room, the attorneys and, and the judge have been desensitized to this by micro decision and micro decision or micro transgression of their conscience over time. And everybody's doing it. So it must be okay. And nobody speaks up. So it must be okay. And you walk in there and it is, and you are just at a loss because there is, there is absolutely nothing reasonable about it. There is nothing fair. And these actors that that will pat themselves on the back as being these virtuous representatives of of the lesser people, the people that need their help, the little people will pat themselves on the back as as agents of all things good when when they're actually, I believe, existential threats to the to the rule of law, the right of reply, due process, and, and jurisprudence itself. And they can go home at night patting themselves on the back thinking, we did the right thing. We followed the rules. We did nothing wrong. And there's someone sitting at home broken or a child sitting at home absolutely destroyed or being put in a situation that is absolutely untenable and knowingly being put in that untenable situation. And we blame the child for their entirely predictable response. So, yeah, I think the lawyers of today, the family lawyers of today, were created in those social movements in the 60s that required a certain diminishment of conscience, mm-hmm. a certain elevated ego, but also like a very um, low self-esteem. So most of the bullies, you know, you realise as you grow, most bullies are actually have a big ego but a very low self-esteem. And what you'll notice with these thugs is in family law is that they will openly lie and and because of the, the way the system works, the right of reply is sort of very uh, 
you, you're lucky if you get the right of reply, which is actually enshrined in the constitution is the right to face your accuser. But you, it, it doesn't in practice happen. And there's all kinds of sort of conflicts of interest in terms of the significant, varied and complicated seen and unseen relationships, both front of house and family law and, and behind the scenes. And, um, you know, I liken it a little bit like, say, the Tour de France, you know, like if your attorney is Lance Armstrong and he's, the, he's a legend and he's got to where he got through a 10,000 decisions, <laughs> micro decisions, mm-hmm. and the opposing attorney, to all intents and purposes, it appears like an adversary an adversary but they're really on the same team you know they they don't want they're participating in a, in a swamp that where there's a hell of a lot of money and in that instance they know exactly how money is to be that there is to be divvied up in that particular so there's no way they're going to go at each other because they've got to be loyal to the system their, their ultimate loyalty is to family law and the judge is essentially just the out on the course sort of adjudicator refereeing any little transgressions that happen in the moment and just making sure that the rules are followed, whereas the rules are porous enough for these bad actors to sort of bend and break and and do it without conscience. And behind the scenes are, are the, you know, like the, the cycling body, the international cycling body that oversees the Tour de France, and they just want the Tour de France to go on. It's a moneymaker. It's big. And, of course, it's it's pure and, and amazing and just the best of humanity on display in the mountains of France. And so family law, so the, the Department of Justice of the state level or federal behind the scenes, they just want family law to continue because it's the, the game must go on. And, and nobody that's benefiting from that big pot of money is going to rock the boat. So no cyclist, once you've proven your worth and proven your loyalty to the game of like elite cycling, no one's going to speak out. And you see with Lance Armstrong, where I make the distinction of him being perhaps a sociopath, which is not my per, you know, spot to say, but is that he was notorious for destroying, like utterly destroying any journalist who came out to expose him with with hard evidence. And he destroyed them. So, so I always make this distinction of to lie is sort of part of humanity. You know, lying is not in and of itself a pathology in that it's, you know, we all have this tug of war and lying is just sort of separating ourselves from our, the truth, which is just a power grab, just to, again, and it's a separation from, from God or, or, or our spirit, our own spirit. Um, but the pathology comes in when you're caught in the lie and double down and, the, and, and destroy anybody who, who has the audacity to challenge your lie with something as ridiculous and foolhardy as the truth. So, um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, You know, and that's, uh, I think that kind of went on in my case. Uh, My previous attorney, he told me that another attorney asked, what's my opposing attorney, but some other attorneys stopped in, in right in a hearing and said to him, are you human? And that's just it. I don't think these people are, I don't think they have souls anymore. Yeah. Well, I think it's you sell your soul 
it's like that letting the devil in the door, you know, like the spirit of sin is on your doorstep. So it's always a consideration. Once you open the door and, and let the devil have its way with you, you've sold your soul. And so, and, and, and they're heavy terms and you can have sold your sold out. And I think we're all in, so we live in a world where I think there's a, we're always trying to get to the next level of, importance you know having our ego stroked and you notice we're encouraged to punch down in this world sort of diminish you know fight mum and dad versus each other but don't challenge the system that's actually having you at each other's throat so we're allowed to hate each other blacks are allowed to hate whites men are allowed to hate women but you certainly don't challenge the system that that creates that division so we're always punching down and in a, and in a company or in a military organization or wherever you're always drawn upwards by someone above you who recognizes a certain skill set in you and if you're cynical a lot of that skill set is really just being quiet obedient competent enough but not going to rock the boat you don't if you challenge the system you, if you go into, if you're a family lawyer and you say, you know what, what you did there was unconstitutional and violated about seven of their basic constitutional rights, <laughs> you, um, you're not going to make it very far. And, um, you know, and you may get hauled before an ethics committee. And when I talk about convoluted and unbelievable connections, like the ethics committees, for example, are comprised usually of former judges who have all these complicated relationships, including financial contributions to election campaigns and yeah, whatnot. Definitely. And some of the some of the dis most despicable attorneys are so as part under in the Kentucky bar are sort of on these subcommittees and whatnot related to ethics. So they're sort of the first person in line to see the complaint coming up against them and have leverage with the person actually one of the people on the actual ethics committee and it goes away because you can easily diminish the person that's complaining against you by saying well they're a sore loser you know i beat them in court even if you your victory was ill-gotten the person that's complaining about that is clearly unstable you know and and harvey weinstein had that problem with the women he was raping right he was just trying to make movies and these psychotic and retaliatory women kept accusing him of rape. And Larry Nasser had it at the University of Michigan. And, and lawyers have it in family court or custodial evaluators who rule against the parent, you know, who, who create a biased and, you know, and fraudulent report. Are, um, they're just, they can diminish and destroy, like preemptively discredit the, the actual victim by saying they're crazy, they're unstable. And the um, if, if I can mention the, the there's a particular duo here in uh, in Kentucky in Jefferson County, like a, a really one of the sort of side benefits of my particular case, but also the, the Earhart Club and our serving of the community at, at in, as a whole, is there's one particular lawyer slash custodial evaluator combo that have at least, but, but that I know of, six children who were under the, who they partnered on serving their best interests ended up killing themselves. Mm -hmm. The average time from custodial evaluation to death was just under seven years, about six years and 10 months or give or take. And that 
essentially aligns with what we now understanding of trauma responses where the effects on the brain are often most manifested at seven to 10 years post the actual traumatic event. Now, the commonality between these six cases is profound and astonishing in the sense that this custodial evaluator was known to the court to be producing fraudulent reports and had been sanctioned and had been sued multiple times in uh, in every arena known to ban multiple, multiple complaints to the state board where the same um, stock letter went out as a response to the complaint that we've done our, our investigation and there's nothing to see here. So the state, you know, the board is protect is there to protect the the professional rather than protect the public from a, a rogue practitioner. Um, incidentally, so these six children that, that took their own life that were in such a, because to tap on another sort of misconception in society is when a, when a young adult or an adult for that matter kills themselves, the narrative is, well, they were mentally ill, right? And then we just sort of, we consider that for a minute. It's it, at the front end that smart passes the sniff test and we wash our hands of it and say, you know, yeah, that makes sense. They were mentally ill. But when you take a step back for a minute, you think you know, mentally ill people kill other people. Mm-hmm. Broken people kill themselves. People who have been pushed to a level of hopelessness and despair. And five years ago, that hopelessness and despair, or that I always talk about it as, as begging for mercy. So a child begging for mercy doesn't necessarily come to an adult and say, excuse me, mom, or excuse me, dad, I'm really struggling now and I'm having some dark thoughts and I'm feeling scared and anxious and alone and I don't know what to do. It'll often start out, it may start out at that five years ago and as parents, we often will ignore it because we're scared and don't know what to do. And then over time, the beha- the, it becomes behaviours, they escalate. It may be that the kid throw, punches a window or throws a brick through a uh, thing or breaks some toys or ends up having massive physical tantrums on the floor or whatever. And it's still begging for mercy. But what we, but it also, it looks very much like mental illness. So we go to a psychologist and we pick and we say, this is what's wrong with my child. And the psychologist doesn't start the conversation about this is a human being, like to your point about being human. This was a human being who has been devalued to the nth degree, willfully and deliberately by adults standing in front of them saying, I'm here to serve you as long as you shut up and see the world the way I tell you to see it. So there are countless self-righteous mental health practitioners out there who have effectively slow walked children to their grave absolutely contemptuous of that child was that child's digging in saying no sir no sir this is not the way we should go and and because the therapist knows and and the child couldn't possibly know because they were there and they saw it so that therapist goes home and tells his wife about how virtuous they are because they're dealing with all these monstrosities of children that just don't get it and then which to me looks like contempt for the child and then when that kid kills themselves, usually they're far removed from they don't even know that the child killed themselves. And there's a tragic story of a psychologist here who the mother of one of these kids took a, a note that the kid had written to the psychologist. And the psychologist was on the way out of the office. And the, the, his secretary said to the psychologist, this is, you know, Mrs. Smith stopped by with this little note from Johnny. And, um, and the, the therapist's words as he was out the door was, 
of if only Johnny had listened, you know, like this. So, and in the note from Johnny to the therapist was, if only you'd listened, you know? And so ironic that the, the person paid to protect the child had so much contempt for the child <laughs> that they could say, if only that little monster of a kid who's been through stuff I can't imagine would just get over it and, and regulate their behavior. And then I'll listen to them once they've regulated their behavior or submitted to what I expect them to submit to, everything would have been okay. And the kid didn't need to be told what was wrong with them. The kid needed a human being to sit with them and see the world through their eyes, not focus on what's wrong with them. I, I love stories about here in Louisville, like kids that don't have a dad, for example, and then some old grouchy guy in the neighborhood will take little Johnny, I, I use that name a lot, Johnny <laughs> Johnny's everywhere. So they take Johnny down to the river and throw a line in the river and not even talk. And it's got nothing to do with fishing. It's got nothing to do with talking even. It's just a kid needs to feel chosen. And how do you choose a child? Not by telling them you choose them. You choose them by, by giving your time. And, just, and, and a kid feels valued when you as an adult choose to spend your time with them. And there are too many kids, both with, without the help of family law, but certainly you know, on steroids or turbocharged with family law that are deprived of that most basic human element that helps wire a child's brain healthily Mm -hmm. when they have these meaningful connections of somebody choosing them, you know, and not just telling them, I choose you and I love you. Because it's like you can tell someone you love them every day of their life. If they don't feel chosen, if you don't choose them, you know, my daughter is oftentimes, and I'm guilty of it too, but will say, daddy, will you play with me? And if I say, wait till Tiger hits his next shot or wait till I've done this email, once in a while that, that's possible. But if that becomes the norm, very quickly she learns to stop asking and she's learned not to trust me because I don't follow it because I don't choose her so I can tell her I love her but I don't choose her so how do I really love her? how can I say I really love her and the tragedy of that is she begins to learn that she's unlovable and how many kids have a parent ripped from them or a ripped from a parent and it goes both ways and that are just are emotionally awash with anguish and and dehumanization because a parent was taken away from them just because they could be taken away by the power of an articulate and crooked attorney that that knew. So the back to these six kids. So so the common thread through these six kids and the and the two dads was that in this duo of. Um, lawyer and custodial evaluator, there was a substantive and demonstrable omission from, from the uh, evaluation of one parent and demonstrable confabulations about the other parent. So the report was a fraud. And, this, and the family court system, multiple judges knew of this custodial evaluator to be crooked and corrupt, but she's a very useful pet to have for, for these attorneys because you don't have the lawyer doesn't have to tell them what to say if they say the right thing and work and work in the give a report that favors them they, they can then request the judge in the next case use that same custodial evaluator so it's a little bit crooked how the judge doesn't just assign them the attorneys get to ask for the custodial evaluator 
they, they prefer. And um, and so it's it's mind-boggling. But so the and in these instances, so and when you go into these custodial evaluations, they're long drawn out, ridiculous events and and pseudoscience at best. And the you're you're not allowed to record the conversations, and you're um and the and it's the disclaimer is given that this is uh, for reference only for the attorneys and the in the interested parties. But the, the attorneys don't want to be the bad guy and make the bad decision. So they always rely on this report. So there's, you know, so the, the custodial evaluator becomes a very important player in the mix. And but, but so six, seven years later, you have a, a dead child. And in two instances, a, a, a concomitant dead parent, dead father. And, and it happens, I'm sure, as we delve deeper into this mess, it will become that there's mothers and 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 infinitely more people and those people killed themselves because they were broken and 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 the and the lawyers by the time it comes to pass if you ever bring that to their attention i mean they've got plausibility deniability plausible deniability up the yin yang because they can say well they had a bad math teacher or their basketball coach was mean to them or something like that there's a million and one reasons why this kid could have passed away but statistically they are far and away Depth, deeply involved in some in, in numbers that just don't add up, and um, it's yeah. I, I had another point to make on that, but it's um, it, it's just, it's horrifying. And mm-hmm. because at the front end of it, they were the paid actors, mm-hmm. absolutely dogmatic in front of the court and anybody who would listen that they were the experts. They knew what was in this child's best interest. And they took a lot of money to be stewards of this child's alleged best interests. And then when the, when it's all said and done and they've, they've cashed the check and the child's in it, put in an untenable but knowingly untenable situation, wash their hands of it and game on. You know, we couldn't have known there was a million and one other variables when they were lock, stock and barrel at the centre of the decision making at the, the front end of it. And that happens, you know, I, I think as we delve deeper into this, it's not just a Jefferson County thing. I think Jefferson County is unique in that it's some of the twists and turns of these conflicts of interest in relationships. And you have some of the most smarmy, deceptive lawyers are giving talks at the luncheons for Guardians Ad Litem and the Friend of the Court and all these groups. So they're there in front of them patting themselves on the back. Oh, my goodness, we just would do anything for the kids, anything for the children, and um, except return a phone call when a child's really struggling. Mm-hmm. So there's like one last point probably before we wrap it up is that, um, you know, there's a little acronym they use here in Jefferson County where a few lawyers learn about um, in, they call it insurance, so AAA, you know, and it's like anger, afraid, affluence. And it's sort of the insurance that gets a greedy lawyer a ton of money and a ton of good billing at the expense of a child. But the AAA stands for anger. You've got to have a parent angry enough to be prepared to destroy the other parent of their child mm-hmm. by whatever means necessary, <laughs> you know, no holds barred and it's just to the attorneys well you got to do this because they're going to fight dirty so we're going to get ahead of the game here and this is a dirty business but it's for the best interests of your child so you've got to do it and you're angry and you're rightly angry so you've got to be have a person that's vol- so and the bottom line is the parents 
are, I believe, in most part innocent. You know, there can be some personality stuff, traits there, but then they get exploited by the greedy lawyers. They gin up these incredible, horrible things for, for billing hours, you know, dressed up as the best interests of the child. So there's the anger, then there's the afraid. So you've got to be afraid enough of the, of the truth being exposed mm-hmm. that, but conflate that fear onto your former, you know, the, the other parent so that you're afraid of them. They're angry, they're unstable, they're, they're unhinged. And um, so, so you, can, you use all this hyperbole to create an imaginary threat from, the, from the, the, the other parent, the other parent of your child who you had together. And, um, and then the other part is affluence. You know, you've got to be affluent enough. So family law is like the culture, like is the, the, war, the government's way of managing and keeping the middle class in servitude. The welfare state looks after the poor, the rich look after themselves and family law dabbles in at least 50% of households in a way that keeps half of us in servitude to something that that's not the actual best interests of our children. And so, um, yeah, as you, as you can tell, I can go on and on about this stuff. Oh, you're going to go on and on because I'm going to have <laughs> you back on. <laughs> well, I, I'd, be, I'd love to come back and, um, I think in the grand scheme of things, I, I hope this leads to a sort of a transformation because I, I think we're all led to believe that family court is kind of a necessary evil as, you know, and, and this is what you have to do. The only people that can navigate this incredibly complex issue are the family lawyers and the lawyers present themselves as they're there for you and they're there for your kids. So it sounds very noble, but it's actually a, a, an unimaginable abuse, both of, of the parents and their clients but ultimately the children. And so I, one of the, for the, the dark forces in the world, angry parents are, are a great sort of smoke screen mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, this is really a war on children. This is about making sure that the next generation of children are completely and utterly demoralized and they see like various degrees of submission you know if like lies are unfortunately despite the loyal the, the legal interpretation of it lies are a part of this game you know accu- false accusations are part of the game of family law and it's like the preemptive discredit if you preemptively discredit your opponent you essentially remove decorum from the equation and anything goes in the spirit of, because when you diminish someone, you're basically saying they don't deserve the right of reply because they're less than. And so you, you create this. So kids see the parent that lies often wins, you know, and kids aren't stupid. They see it. So it sends this contrary message, always tell the truth. But in this dopaminergic world, when you lie, you get the immediate victory and you see it. Now, what else do kids see? The kids also see the other parents submit because if you don't submit, you're a troublemaker. You, you run the risk of never seeing your child. So you submit. But what does that look like 10 years later when my daughter tells me when she's 15 that she's being bullied or someone's saying this, this or this about her? And I say, honey, you know what? You got to stand up for what you believe in. Do what's right, even if it's going to cause you personal angst and, and discomfort. And then your daughter looks at you and says, like you did, Dad, you know, 
And you, because you know you didn't, you didn't stand up. There's, there's shame and guilt built into it because when you submit to the powers of family court, you, when you submit, you are basically separating yourself from the truth. You're selling out. And, and, that, and what that does to the human spirit is in, it brings shame and guilt to the equator. You know you haven't done the right thing. You know you're supposed to stand and fight. But if you do stand and fight, family law has become so crooked and so deceptive and so dangerous that you get destroyed, you know, and, and you can even be imprisoned or, or, or worse, you know. So there's, and, and, and a lot of people are living in prisons, you know, mm -hmm. in the community, the prison Im imposed upon them by, by family law. So, you know, one last point that I promise this will be the last point, but is one of the things in that whole submission thing is, is absurdity. So the, it is, so like it's in plain sight that thing that this is absurd you know you can be a a, a a pilot of a 747 you can be stable enough to fly a 747 across the atlantic ocean with 400 strangers on board you can be stable enough to drive a freight train laden with hazardous materials through a densely populated urban community you can be stable enough to tighten the bolts on a bridge that crosses a heavily traversed bridge on the road or any number of things yet be too unstable to spend time with your own children mm -hmm. you know and mm -hmm. when you submit to that kind of absurdity as a human being you you feel less you've been diminished and and in part you, you can justify it to yourself that you didn't stand up because if you did stand up you'd be destroyed and one of the other words is they love to use is emotional or unstable. So you can be, I, I, if you dare speak up about something, you're emotionally labile or emotionally unstable. So the, um, the this this truly is the last point, Marianne. Is that um, <laughs> don't worry if you about were it. <laughs> a, if you were a law student, for example, when Trump got elected, if you were a law student at the University of Michigan that I am very familiar with, I worked there. You were you were allowed to have a day of crying and a day of playing with Lego and Play-Doh because of the, the trauma to you of, of Donald Trump being elected as president. This is common knowledge. It was, it's, you can look at it, it was all over the place. So you can cry and scream and raise holy hell about a, a stranger being, a public figure being elected to the presidency. Yet if you sit on the stand in court or in a psychologist's office a little bit teary about the fact that your child got wrenched away with from you, there's something wrong with you. And think and again, that plays to that absurdity notion. And in the and in the scary element, the lawyers at the University of Michigan, one of them statistically is going to be a Supreme Court justice one day. You know, that's like one of the best law schools in the country by reputation. So these are the future leaders of our country that that paint like if and we see it in our schools with kids. Emotional regulation is the benchmark of being a valid human being. So if you've got the universities teaching you that you've got to keep quiet and keep your emotions in check, that's what makes you virtuous and worthwhile, and that's what's going to get you elevated and have your ego fed heaven help us so we're going to stop this rot somewhere along the way and and i think we're going to start from the ground up um changing the world from family law and through the community as a whole i am so glad you came on and you're coming back <laughs> whether you like it or not <laughs> so uh, hey how can people reach you 
you know. Um, so if they look on online, the 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 Earhart Club, it's spelled Earhart like Amelia Earhart. So the Earhart E A R H A R T Club dot org. Uh, we're on Facebook and Instagram and social media, so they can check out our website and um and, and you can re- reach me through there, like Angus at the Earhart Club dot org, and um yeah, with and uh, any feedback, any thoughts on some of our ideas here and some of the the, the horrors of family court in Jefferson County. Let's um, let's make sure we move forwards and and change uh, actually change the world, not as the idea, but as a, we have an absolute responsibility as to our children and to future generations to actually change the world and okay. to change this r- horrific system of um, yeah falsehoods. Yes. Oh, you said it all. And I totally, totally thank you. But uh, don't jump off. Slam the gavels of podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I am your host, Marianne Petri, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth, and the latest release of Raised by These Wolves, How Family and Federal Courts Are Destroying Our Children. You can find my podcast on Spotify, YouTube, Apple iTunes, Anchor FM. Uh, Feel free to donate to buy me a coffee to keep the podcast going. And I totally thank you, Angus Williams, and I will have you back on. (laughs) I'll I'll be happy to be back. Thank you.